All right, good morning again, and I'm happy to be back in Nehemiah. And uh, for those of you that have read chapter 3 of Nehemiah, you know how exciting of a chapter that is. It's just a bunch of uh, almost equivalent to the genealogies. But you know, the whole Word of God is the Word of God. And what we have to do is we have to understand that the Jewish people at this point in time have literally been uh, in exile one way, one way, shape, or form or another um, for over 100 years, well over, probably around 170 years. And so they were released from the king of Persia to be able to go and rebuild the temple. And then that happened, but then a little bit after that, uh, there was a giant break um, and this was about maybe a hundred years after the temple had stopped, uh, was built. And now Nehemiah and Ezra are there to reestablish the people of God according to God's promises. He is going to bring them back, he said, into the land. He is going to reestablish them and he is going to do it himself before he comes suddenly to his temple, as we hear in the book of Malachi. And so typically I would read through our passage of scripture, but I really want to cover the whole chapter today. Not that I want to read every aspect of it because you were supposed to do that last night if you read my email. Um, But as where we're at right now in the story is God is dealing in a man. He is dealing in a man named Nehemiah. And so he first dealt in Nehemiah's heart and he did that so he could follow through and then work through Nehemiah. So oftentimes we go through crazy things in our life. Oftentimes God gives us great burdens. And usually it's because he is trying to prepare to work through us. And so we can be guaranteed that every single thing that happens to us in our life is is according to God's hand, according to God's sovereignty, but don't just stop there. He wants to take that and use that for his glory and for the building of his kingdom. And that's what he did with Nehemiah. He gave him a burden to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the shambles that were left from the invasion of the Babylonians years before. He had no idea how he was going to do it. He wasn't even alive when it happened. God just gave him this burden. And before you know it, He's before King Artaxerxes, the Persian ruler, and the Persian ruler gives him permission to go and do it. How fast can life change? I mean, just that's why to me, I was saying it in jest, but this is such an exciting thing if you take us from Nehemiah's perspective. He was just a few months back mourning and crying and weeping and fasting and praying to the Lord. God, give me, put your hand upon me. And now he's riding on a donkey looking at this rubble and all this mess and going, okay, now what am I going to (laughs) do? Wow, God, God really answered this prayer. Because Nehemiah knew that he could not do it alone. He also knew that this was not God's character to do things Lone Ranger style. God uses people. And so when you go through the book, the third chapter, of Nehemiah, the the important thing is to look at the verse at the end of chapter 2, where he says, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Remember who he was talking to? His enemies, Sambalot and Tobiah, who were mocking him, saying, are you going against the king? You're going to rebuild this wall? He says, you have no memory here. 
You have no portion here and no right here in Jerusalem. And so now this next chapter is showing us all the different people that join together in the work. And so this chapter is written in the third person, we believe by Ezra and probably by Nehemiah giving him the information. But this is really so that way once the the country gets reestablished, they can know almost like a genealogy who was involved and who was for this. And so that's one reason I believe God gave it to us. And and this is sort of how it goes. If you look at verse uh, one, if you have it in your Bible, like I said, it won't be up on the screen. It says, uh, then Eliashib, the high priest, arose and his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and they hung its doors. They consecrated the wall of the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hanau. So that's how the gates were. There was a gate and then there was a wall, and then there was a tower, and then there was another wall, and then there was a gate, and it went all around Jerusalem. If you go to our website under Nehemiah Resources, you could see a, a picture of what the temple uh, and the gates look like during this time. Much different than Solomon's, much different than when Herod came and redid it. But then you go through the whole entire, the whole entire chapter, and this is what we see. These different groups and these different clans that are being recognized as being part of the project. Now, one of the biggest struggles for many people, especially leaders, if you're a leader, you'll, you, you know this, entrusting others to do things is difficult, especially when you know you can do it yourself. You know you, you, see, you know you can get it done yourself, but as a leader, his job isn't always just to get the job done. His job is to also teach and train others and use others. Otherwise, what? The reach and the influence of the leader becomes very small. But once he delegates and once he replicates, then it becomes much more powerful. I know as a parent, it's difficult sometimes to watch my child do something as simple as the dishes. I'm looking at them and I'm going, I could have had this done 10 times over, you know, and they're doing slow, they're doing it all different, they're putting the plates different than I would. But you know what? It's not just about that, is it? I would do it differently. Maybe learning to cook a meal, same way. I yell at my kids all the time, you know. You, you heat the pan up before you put the, the, the pan on it. You know what I mean? Cover up the chicken, it'll cook twice as fast, you know, all these other things. And I just allow them to do it. Not so much just to delegate the work, but for the greater purpose of learning, discipline, responsibility, and of course, the joy that comes along with accomplishment as they contribute to the bigger goal of maintaining the home in that case. We want them to be part of the team to learn and to grow towards God's ultimate purpose for their life as a result. So think about God now for a second. Okay, we think about Jehovah God. Think about his power. Does he need anyone? Needs no one. He needs nothing. He can say a word and not only accomplish his purposes instantly, but perfectly as well. Why then does God choose to use people? Well, Nehemiah was a person the Lord used to spark a burden. Not only did God spark a burden in Nehemiah, But he used Nehemiah to then spark a burden in the people of God to rebuild the walls. Why not just say the word and allow it to happen? Because I guess you could say God, excuse me, is a team player. God is a team player. 
He's our leader, but God is about teamwork. He didn't create us to be his puppets, but to join in along with him to accomplish his will of creating his ultimate dwelling place, which will be the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we're working towards at Jesus's return. So Nehemiah chapter three is a microcosm of this teamwork. It's a microcosm of this rebuilding. Although at first sight, it seems a bit overwhelming, like I said, name after name, gate after gate. But when we take a closer look, it reveals God's character, much about God's character. It reveals God's desire for his people to carry out his will along with him to accomplish his purposes and to bring his promises to fulfillment. So as we're going to see today, this applies directly to us as his people working to build for the kingdom of God. Now, I want to flesh that out because I use that phrase a lot. And a lot of times people may get the wrong picture about what it means to build for the kingdom of God. So first of all, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is God's power, God's rule bearing down on this present world because the enemy's rule and the enemy's power has been defeated at the cross. He is still active and he is still, the battles are still fighting. But the kingdom of God, as Jesus said over 110 times, is here. His rule is now reestablished because of his death, resurrection, and ascension. And so that's the rule, the kingdom. Now, what is God doing? God is making all things new. He's not making all new things. He's making all things new. And what I, what I really mean by that is he's redeeming and restoring through the gospel, through the message of the gospel, through the message that Jesus, God himself, the son of God, came and died on the cross to defeat sin, death, and evil, to pay for our sins and to show that victory and to launch that same power that, used, that, that rose him from the dead out into the world. Now, how does he launch that power out into the world? Through the Holy Spirit. Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? In you. Now, you go out and build for the kingdom of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're preaching the gospel. You're propagating the gospel. You're living the gospel. But you're also renewing and restoring that which has been destroyed and ruined by sin. And the way to do that is through love. The way to do that is through following the word of God, following the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so Nehemiah chapter three is a microcosm of that. They're building, the, they're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem based on God's promises in God's power, doing all this stuff. And that's exactly what we're called to do as Christians here. Now, how does this happen? Again, this doesn't happen by really special, good, unique Christians that have, uh, you know, superstars. Yeah. No Christian superstars. Only one, Jesus. It happens, like, like Kevin read, through having really good fingers, really good toes, really good eyes, really good ears, right? That's the body is made up. The hand can't say to the foot, I'm more important than you, or vice versa. So God is using everyone According to who they are made, they were made for a purpose, you, and he is using you to build for that kingdom. But first, there needs to be 
unification. There needs to be a unified people of God. And that's what God did, and that's what we're seeing being done here in chapter 3. He unified people under leadership. That was the first thing that we'll talk about. He also unified people that were under his word, God's word. And he also unified people for his work, the actual repairs and everything that we are going to see. Now, you got to be careful when you say the word unity nowadays, because then people go, oh, yes, great. We're all unified. Let me put the bumper sticker on and we're all good. We have to be unified. We even have to be unified in a sense with people that don't even believe like us. For instance, in society, right? We don't go out and say, I'm only going to go to a, you know, reformed Baptist restaurant for dinner tonight. Or I'm only going to go to, uh, you know, this deli over here because they believe in the gifts of tongues. Uh, And I'm only going to, we don't do that, right? We unify with society. We could even unify with society, maybe even people uh, like the homeless ministry that we do. Uh, The homeless ministry is all a bunch of different denominations, a lot of which I disagree with. But we could unify by having homeless people here at our church, despite the fact that they may be going to a synagogue next week. That's okay. We're unifying, God says, to take care, to love, to feed the poor. It's okay to do that. But we have to be very careful with this word, with unification. So we're going to talk about that. But primarily what I'm talking about is unification of God's people, the people that agree on who God is. And the first thing that God did here is he, he used leaders. He used Nehemiah. Now, again, Nehemiah is no more important, just like the scripture. He, he may be a, a mouth, but he's no more important than the feet or the hands as it relates to the body of Christ. But Nehemiah was a great organizational. He was a great organizational talent. He was a great leader. He, I'm assuming he was a great communicator. He had leadership skills. He was a leader. Now, God is looking for leaders. He is looking for people that will say, here I am, send me. Doesn't mean you have to be charismatic. It doesn't mean you have to be eloquent when you talk. All it means is, is you have to be submitted to Jesus Christ. And he will make you that leader. He may, you may just be the, you may, he may want you to lead a church. He may want you to lead a school. He may want you to lead your family or your son or daughter. He may want you to lead as a discipler. I can go on and on and on. But he wants us to lead and see what, what was the best quality of a leader, I believe, as, a, as it relates to Nehemiah, is he was able to get a, div, a diverse segment of people, people that were unified under the God of Israel, but they were very diverse. They were, some of them didn't like each other. Some of them didn't get along. And if you read through some of these names... And you go through, you'll see, you know, some of their names like uh, um, Elishab means God restores. And in verse two, Zakor means mindful. And then Imri means eloquent. But then you get to Hassaniah and his name means thorny. Right. And then we have another guy uh, in verse six, um, uh, Pesea. He means he's a limper. He was limping everywhere. Right. So you got all of these. And I could go on. There's probably 30 names here. They're all different meanings. 
But Nehemiah was able to work with a diverse group of people and to keep the keep people focused on the main vision despite their difficulties with each other. And this is what we have to do individually. We have to do this as, a, as, a, as the church wholesale, the you know, church, visible church worldwide, but more importantly for us as a body here. We need to unify. Like again, there's no superstars, there's no individuals. When somebody says, I'm going to Pat's church, I say, well, no, don't say that. That'll get to my head. It's God's church. God just has me as the, as the, as the preacher. I'm the teacher, the elder, of the, the teaching elder. That's, that's where God has me. But where does he have you in this fellowship to be a leader? Where does he have you? What does he have you doing? You know, Again, I don't care about church growth in numbers. I care about church growth in hearts. If everybody's hearts grow onto the Lord, closer to God, guess what? You're a healthy sheep and you're going to go replicate and make healthy sheep too. You're going to bring people in. So I don't care about that. But if our heart isn't aligned with God as, as he's a team player and we come in here going, all right, let's hear what the word says and then let's go out to eat and we'll come back next Sunday. You need to be open to the leading of the Spirit. Where is God calling you to serve in this church? What is He calling you to do? Again, I'm not trying to guilt you into doing this. You know, everyone's squirming around now looking at their watch, right? <laughs> I'm not going to make some call to action that, you know, we need to do this. But I'll tell you right now if everybody was eager to serve in this church, I believe the church would probably double in numbers, the effect it would probably double over a year or two. And that's pretty good growth. And not that I want to do that, but don't we want to influence our community? Don't we want to get out there? Don't we want to be the best we can be for Jesus, right? We don't, we don't, we're not going to strive. I don't want you striving, right? But hey, look, where do you want me to serve, Lord? The Lord will say, where there's a need. That's what he usually does. Okay, it's hard. Listen, for, for me, the first time I ever served at a church, God grabbed my heart. I, I went and I said, I, um, you know, I, I have some experience in prison ministry and I can teach, you know, uh, decently and I like evangelism and, and I want to serve at this church. And they said, all right, well, we need someone to clean the bathrooms. That's literally what Pastor Chris McCarrick told me at Calvary Cornerstone back in 2003. He said, I said, well, that's great. Well, I, I actually did that before, you know, at another church, you know, but, uh, but I'll do it. And I did it and it was great. It was a great experience. And it was God preparing me, humbling me to be able to do that, not so that people could see I'm cleaning the bathrooms, but so that he can say, look, Patsy, you're being a part of this. And I think that it was a leadership move. I'm not patting myself on the back. That was a leadership. That's the type of leadership that I'm talking about. You may be the leader at the top of the, in front of the army going, let's go in charge. That's great. We need those too. But I'm talking about initiative and leadership. Now, Nehemiah, in, in, regardless of where you are in that scale, whether you think you have the calling, the leadership or not, but leadership can be a quality that can be developed. And again, go to the Lord and, and speak to him about it. You see, not only were there a diverse group of people, but if you look at each of these um, groups in this chapter, uh, they are broken up into clans. That's how they would be back then. Because again, remember, <clears throat> they're all back in Jerusalem, but they're sort of, they don't really know the word of God. That No one's really brought it to them, 
I mean, Ezra came to start to teach them that. They don't remember what the old temple was like. They have other people moving in and they're intermarrying with foreign wives. They weren't supposed to do that. They were supposed to keep the line clean. And so all these little clans and groups raised were, were sort of risen up. And so you'll also see like in verse 9, you'll see next to them as uh, Rapiah, the son of Hur, the official of half the district of Jerusalem. And then again, verse 12, the, another guy who was the official of the other half of Jerusalem. And then we see in every verse from 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, we see eight rulers of districts. So what does this unification require? Humility? I'll tell you right now, <laughs> Nehemiah was not a lording over. He would have been wiped out in a second. He wasn't a lording over leader, right? Well, I'm a leader, so you know, God raised me up. He didn't raise you up. He spoke to my heart. You know, he wasn't doing that. He was humble. He was humble. He didn't even tell anybody why he was going there until he walked around all the rubble. Remember in chapter 2? He kept it all in his heart. And he gave grace. He had to. That's because I know when we get together and work together as a church, we have to give each other grace. We have to give each other forgiveness. I know, you know, a lot of times, and not in smaller churches, but or maybe, but um, a lot of times in bigger churches, you see people, they break off into segments and clans and, and different things, right? But we have a smaller church here. So it's hard sometimes. Sometimes people rub us the wrong way, right? Sometimes people are difficult personalities for us. You know, sometimes people are like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this because I, you know. And so this requires not only grace and humility and forgiveness, but also requires love. Like that's what Jesus said is going to identify us as his disciples is how we love one another. And why do you think he wanted to do that? Well, John 17, he prayed that they, we would be one, that we would be one. So this unification. Now, secondly, we have this leadership, uh, this, this unifying under leadership. We see Nehemiah, we see clans. <clears throat> and now we see a unification as well because of who these people are, because of what they're doing, is they were unified by the word of God. They weren't there saying, well, this guy, Nehemiah, is a really good leader, and he has a really good, cool plan. Let's build the gates, and then maybe we could start our businesses again. No, they were going, hey, guess what? God promised that he would regather us, and he would rebuild this temple. He promised us that these walls would be rebuilt. Let me show you God's word. And these people were like, yes. And we're going to see as we get through these historical books on some of the things that when they heard the word of God, we're going to see this towards the end of Nehemiah, Ezra started right reading the word, they were weeping and wailing. And then when the walls were, were there and, and, and those that knew of the old temple, they were weeping and wailing because of the glory of the old temple compared to this new one. But God said, don't worry, this is just a prototype. <laughs> the real temple is being built in Christ. And then it's the church, right? And then that's a prototype of ultimately what was in the Garden of Eden, that little tiny garden we read about where God's presence was there and those sinless people were there before they made a mistake. Well, that's going to be the whole world and the new heavens and the new earth. So that's what, we're work that's what they're working for. Did they know this? Yes. Read Isaiah. 
right? Isaiah uh, from chapter 50 or, or, or uh, 40 all the way to uh, 66, it's all about this. Read it, the promises of God's deliverance. <clears throat> now, here's the unity. When I say God's word, this is again where we can get some practical stuff from this on terms of unity. It's the promise of God's word, yes, but it's the, it's the unity that, the, that Jehovah is God according to his word. They weren't believing in another God. They were all believing in Jehovah. Okay, and so when we unify with people, all right, if people come into our church that, let's say, are not Christians and they have no idea, do we kick them out and say, no, you need to believe like us before you can help them? No, we, 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 we minister to them. We, we tell them about the word of God. But if there's people that don't believe in the word of God, that don't believe Jesus is who he says he is, then we have to be very careful on yoking together. But that wasn't the case here. The case here was they all believed in the God of the Bible. They all believed in Jehovah. And so there's no compromise in that area, in my opinion. There's no compromise that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. What do these words mean? Inspired, God breathed. All scripture, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, is given by inspiration of God. And in the Greek, it's, it's God breathing it out. It's God's breath. Can't get more literal than that. You know, when Jesus says, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's trying to show the intimacy. Well, God here is saying, my word is inspired by me. It's my breath. Right? It's my breath. It's profitable, uh, 16, it's profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What does infallible mean? It's perfect in divine authority. In all matters, it's perfect. It's inerrant. It's without error or fault in all of its teaching. So inerrant means there's no errors. Infallible means there can be no errors. The word is perfect in its original languages. That doesn't mean the Bible we have isn't perfect. I'm not trying to say that, but I, I say that because some of these interpretations out there are a little wacky. When they're elaborate and they're doing all this stuff, like, great, maybe you need to use that as a commentary, but the word of God is the word of God. Get into it, cross-examine it, Look up words, look at things that are patterns in it and get the whole of scripture, right? All the sum of your word is truth. That's what the word says. We read that today. God unified them. Now, God does not judge unity on the people being perfect. I just want you to say that. See, these people here, even the ones that, were, that he unified together, they were not perfect people. So unity does not mean perfected people. Those that were building were not perfect. They had married foreign wives. Some were excommunicated. For instance, verse 1, um, uh, Eliashib was related. Remember verse 1, Eliashib was related to Tobiah, one of the enemies. And, and, and Eliashib, we're going to see this later on, <clears throat> back in, in when we get to 13, he actually allowed, Tobiah actually uh, uh, stayed in one of the priest chambers. That was a big no-no. Eliashib said, hey, come on, let's go. He was related to him. I'll get you in. 
Nehemiah threw him right out. The son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite. So I drove them away from me. This is in, this is in verse 13, chapter 13. So these people weren't perfect. Hey, man, they did something really dumb-dumb and they got moved out. But here, as they were building, God was using them at this point. And so if God is using them, we need to be there and we need to unify with them as long as they believe like what we were talking about. But they're not perfect people. And again, this is Christianity is not about being perfect, as we know. It's about realizing that we're not perfect. And this is one of the number one reasons why people say they don't want to serve is because they don't feel they're qualified spiritually. So, you know, I just, my walk with the Lord is up and down and, you know, I'm not doing really well right now. And don't get me wrong. If you have situations in your life, you're struggling with your marriage, you know, you're, you're struggling with an addiction, you're struggling with something, then you know what? You need to work on that. Before you go out and serve. I wouldn't say leave that trample over your family and go to the mission field, right? No, but don't wait for you to be perfect. It's never going to happen. Start to seek the Lord on this desire. Start to read the bulletin. I've been here almost two years now and I haven't changed much of the opportunities to serve. I've only added to them. God's nature is this unifying character. God is triune. God never needed anyone. He never was lonely. He never was sitting around devoid of any, anything, of any defect. He created out of love. And, and so the Trinity is this perfect picture of this complementing, this triangle, of, of this complementarian triangle where one is submitting to the other, submitting to the other in its perfect unity. And that's the picture that we're supposed to, mo- that we're supposed to model. <clears throat> Jesus unified others. Jesus came. He didn't do it all by himself. He could have easily did it by himself. We saw glimpses of that. Oh, I got to pay taxes. Hey, Simon, go catch a fish, open its mouth, and take that denarii out and go pay our tax. <laughs> he did things like that sometimes, which shows us he could have done a lot of things on his own. He didn't. I was just reading through Luke. He, t- he sent, what, 70 out. 70 people out to go and preach and proclaim the kingdom of God. And he gave them power to do it. So God will give you the power to unify with your brothers and sisters for his purposes. Now, I don't want to sit here and throw out what is it. I want you to pray. Seek. Serve. You don't need a big, um, you know, uh, know, we're not going to call you up here and and, and applaud you every time you do something. We're not going to do that. But serving is um, very, very important to God, obviously, and his character shows it. Jesus, I I mentioned this, uh, unified the disciples. But I wanted to add to the the, the scripture that Kevin read today because he stopped, um, I believe, right at verse 20. And so verse 21 says, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again to the head, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer than that, that, I'm having a hard time reading here, guys, I'm sorry. It's much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow, uh, bestow more abundant honor. I'll stop there. 
Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, because I know some of you are going here, oh, I don't know about me. I don't know where I could fit in. I don't know what, what I have to offer. God says, you're the more honorable. You're the more needed. So step out and step out and do it. Now, <clears throat> he unified them. This is the final point. He unified them in the work of building and repairing in the work. So it's not just being unified in heart, not just being unified under the leadership, but now we actually have to go out and do the physical work and be unified in doing that. All right, whether it be evangelism, whether it be discipleship, whether it be cleaning up our property, whether it be building something out here, who knows what it is? Who knows what it can be? It was great. We had a, a cleanup day a couple of months ago or a month ago, whenever it was. We had like a lot of people came out, 13, 14 people maybe. I don't know, maybe more. And everybody was unified in the work. Why? Because we knew the job. We knew the goal. We had one vision and that was to clean up and we all came around and we did it. And see, what is our vision as a church? It's to get the gospel out. It's the vision of renewal, the vision of propagating the gospel through the teaching of the word of God, verse by verse. And so this is where it starts. And now you go, take the word of God and go work, build and repair. I love it. Nehemiah, this action and these people built and repaired is used. Well, built is used seven times. Made or carried out repairs is used 26 times in this one chapter. Anytime you see that, you have to take note of it. God is showing us that this is about the action. It's not just about getting in as a Christian, because that's what we've all grown up. <laughs> I know for me, I shouldn't say we all. But for me, it's always been about getting in, getting in. I got to get in. I got to get saved. I got to go to heaven. I, gotta, you know, I could die any second. And that's true. But really, according to the scriptures, that's just the beginning. God saves you for a purpose. Yes, eternal, but you're skipping over the whole, you know, how people say on the, on the tombstone, that little dash is what matters between the numbers. We're skipping that over that when we just go to heaven, when we just go think about heaven. It's like never seeing, a, you know, a beach your whole life. Ever. You never saw the ocean. So you drive all the way down to Point Pleasant and you run to the ocean and you fall down in the sand. And you go, oh, look at this sand. This is amazing. I go, no, but you got to look at the ocean. No, no, no. Look at this sand. I just wanted to be at the beach. And you're playing with the sand and you leave and you never see the ocean. The vastness of it. That's your life. God doesn't want you just to have the sand of salvation. He wants you now to go look at that ocean and say, this is my life. What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to swim? Do you want me to fish? What do you want me to do now, Lord? That's what the inspiration is. That's about getting in for a purpose. And that's what he's called us to do. It's not just getting saved for a heaven experience. You will have eternity with Christ. You'll die You'll be in the grave. Your, your spirit will be present with the Lord. You'll be risen from the dead. And that whole eternity will be for a purpose. You're not going to be bored in eternity. I believe, as, as the scriptures hint to, that it's not just the age to come. It's the ages to come. So we're in this next age now, this kingdom age that's here. Christ is going to renew it all. But and I believe... Because Paul gives us hints that we're going to judge angels and we're going to have all these other responsibilities. It's pretty exciting. But that starts now. 
Your skills, what you're doing is used for that too. So we got to get our hands in the work. So anyway, we have all these different gate descriptions. You know, you can take this, you know, a lot, all different ways. You have the sheep gate in verse 3 and 32. So it starts with the sheep gate and the end of the chapter ends with the sheep gate, showing that they went around the whole wall. Uh, The sheep gate is called sheep gate because it was a market right next door to it that sold sacrificial sheep. And there was a fish gate because of the fish markets. And there was the old eastern gate, which is we believe is the one that Jesus walked through. Um, although these gates were destroyed and built over, and the Muslims actually took the east gate and, and filled it up so that the Messiah could never walk through it. So that's then. But again, that's why I say, that, you know, I don't want to go too far off here of it's not as significant as we think. The rebuilding of the temple is a type of the temple that is to come in Christ. But you see all these different gates. I, you know, you can go, I think only seven of them remain. But uh, I would suggest that if you have some time, go through it, look at the map. And um, and I believe that you'll be edified uh, with that. So we have to be unified under God's leaders, under his word and for his work. Let me um, just share one other thing to, uh, with you about this, you know, I was reading because, because uh, again, here's what, again, I, I try to simplify this as, as much as we can. So in Acts chapter 16, do you remember Paul and Cyrus? They were on their second missionary journey and um, God was leading them. He was calling them, telling them where to go. And then they upset the apple cart and uh, caused somebody's business. They were selling idols uh, to, to basically, you know, go to pot. So they had Paul not just arrested, but beaten with rods, him and Silas, beaten with rods. And now they get thrown into jail. And what amazed me about this was this gave me a picture of how I am to do kingdom work during a, in a world full of mess-ups, in a world full of adversity, in a world full of personal trials, in a world through of just, you guys, do I need to to go on our world, right? It's a mess. But what did they do? They sang hymns. They prayed aloud. Now, again, I'm not, this isn't just a happy story to say, hey, you know, just be happy during adversity. No, Why were they able to do that? They were able to do that because they weren't focusing on their circumstances. They weren't focusing on all the negativity. They weren't laying in in the jail going, are they going to come back in and beat us again? They weren't laying in the jail going, should we sing? I mean, are we going to cause more problems? Nope. They were focusing on Jesus. Daniel in the lion's den, lying in in the middle of the lion's. Sleeping like a, like a baby. Why? Focusing on Jesus. And that's what we have to do as kingdom builders. Focus on Christ. Because if you wait for all the lights to be on green before you drive, or if you wait for everything to be perfect to start serving and, get, and getting unified and doing all this, it's not going to work. This is how we get unified, people. We focus all on Christ in subjection to him, being willing to do whatever it is he is calling us to do. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please give us hands to work for you, Lord. Give us wisdom as we do this. 
Lord, we as a church want to be used by you. We want to be um, effective in this community, but more importantly, we want to be effective for your kingdom. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here, Lord, that doesn't know you, that they would look to you, Jesus Christ, for salvation and trust you to cover and pay for their sins and live for you as, as a kingdom builder with extreme purpose and value in this world. And Lord, I pray for anyone here struggling with this, that God, that you would clear their eyes, clear their way, that they would just walk towards the light, Lord, walk towards you. <clears throat> God, please fill us with the Holy Spirit, God, in Jesus' name, amen.